We'll hear argument now in number 94588-558, United States against Ray Hayes, consolidated with number 94627, Louisiana versus Ray Hayes. Uh, General Iyab. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is the Louisiana congressional reapportionment case, the first such case to reach this Court on the merits after Shaw versus Reno. The District Court held that Louisiana's 4th Congressional District violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The District Court also held that all race-conscious redistricting, while not always unconstitutional, is always subject to strict scrutiny. Louisiana's population is over 30 percent black. Since the end of Reconstruction until the 1980s, blacks have never comprised a majority in any of Louisiana's congressional districts. It wasn't until 1983, compelled by federal court order, that Louisiana drew its first majority-minority district, and not until 1990 uh, did Louisiana send its first congressman uh, to to Washington. Uh, In this century, no black has been elected to either statewide office or to Congress or to the state legislature except from majority-minority districts. And I hardly need to remind this well, What do you mean, General Ayub, about uh, what is a majority-minority district? Your Honor, I think a majority-minority district is, is a district that will give uh, minorities a fair opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. Well, then it's almost self-defining, isn't it? I mean, if you say nobody has been elected except from a district which will give minorities a chance to elect uh, a minority, uh, is there any independent definition of a majority-minority district? Your Honor, I do not know of any uh, independent uh, uh, definition. Uh, It's simply that uh, the the district contains uh, a majority-minority population. Uh, For instance, Louisiana's 4th Congressional District has a 55 percent majority-minority population. So that perhaps is the definition, that the, the district has a majority of a minority population. Yes, Your Honor. And, of course, Louisiana has had, unfortunately, a history of past discriminatory practices. Act One, Your your Honors, is an effort on the part of a majority white legislature to afford minorities a fair opportunity. I do not say a guarantee, but a fair opportunity to have a second minority voice in the halls of Congress. Act One does not guarantee... The assumption being that unless the minority is in a majority... They don't have a fair opportunity to get one of their members elected in Louisiana, an acceptance of, of essentially racial voting. Your Honor, because... You acknowledge that in Louisiana you don't have a chance of being elected unless, uh, unless you're elected by a majority of your race. Your Honor, the history that we have, the voting history in the state of Louisiana is an indication... You accept that. I accept that as the reality and want to uh, draw district lines on the acceptance of that reality, that people vote by race and that we must district by race. Your Honor, we will accept the reality that that a black has never been elected to a legislative seat or to a congressional seat unless it was from a majority-minority district in the state of Louisiana. We have to accept that fact because that that is the history. As for the 14th Amendment... And and if you accept that fact, uh, do you draw these districts in order to perpetuate that practice? No, Your Honor, or, we... Or, 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 or to try and eliminate it? 
We, tr we try to draw the districts. We try to draw the districts in such a way as to give a fair opportunity to minorities to elect their, their candidates with the hope that soon we will not have to consider race in, in this situation. Do you think this will help uh, society to get away from considering race? Yes, Your Honor. By intentionally drawing the districts according to race and having people run on the basis of race, presumably in these racial districts, you think we're going to eliminate this terrible state of affairs in Louisiana that people vote by race? I you think, think they'll eliminate it rather than entrench it. I think, Your Honor, that it can eliminate it. I think that if a state is reasonable and balanced in its drawing a, a majority-minority district, I think that if we send a message that race does not submerge all other factors in the consideration of drawing a majority-minority district. are you sending that message when you draw a district on the basis of race and when you come up and acknowledge that you don't have a fair chance of getting, getting elected in Louisiana unless people of your race vote for you? Your Honor, we send that message because, because this is a district that only gives a fair opportunity. It doesn't pack minorities into a particular district. It's 55% black population, which we have evidence to establish is almost necessary to give a fair opportunity. If you look at the, uh, the congressional districts that border District 4, you will find that those districts have between an 18 to a 27% black population, which is more black population than 75% of all the other districts in nationwide. So that's some indication that we're not trying to send out a message that we're trying to segregate or separate. Rather, we're trying to include. We're trying to give a fair opportunity here. If you look at five of the 12 parishes that were split in, in, in drawing uh, District 4, you will find that the, that the portion of the parishes that were brought into District 4 actually had a greater white population than a black population. For instance, Evangeline Parish, that section of Evangeline Parish that came into District 4 had a 62 percent white population and only a 37 percent black population. What we are oh, may, may I just uh, be clear on one fact? You, we, we now know what a majority-minority district is. And you said the population, the black population, was 30 percent of the state. Before 1983, was there any majority-minority uh, district? No, Your Honor. And no black had ever been elected in, ever? That's correct, Your Honor. That's correct, Your Honor. As for the 14th Amendment, we submit that the judgment below condemning Act 4 as a violation of the uh, of Equal Protection Clause is fundamentally wrong for three reasons. First, the district court misread Shaw versus Reno and applied strict scrutiny in condemning District 4, which is not bizarre on its face if you measure it by objective standards of past redistricting principles. Well, was, uh, dis is District 4 the most compact majority-minority district that could be drawn outside New Orleans? Yes, Your Honor. It, it is the most compact. Uh, it, it follows very closely the old 8th Congressional District, uh, which was a majority white district. It follows it extremely closely. I invite Your Honors to look at the colored depictions of the maps of the old 8th Congressional District, which we have supplied the court. There you will see 25 years of redistricting history upon which the configuration of the old 4th, of the 4th Congressional District is built. But wasn't the old 8th District deliberately gerrymandered just to keep Representative Long in office? 
Your Honor, there was evidence that, uh, uh, that was that uh, it was drawn in such a way as to uh, assist uh, uh, Congressman Gillis Long in being elected. Uh, but uh, obviously, uh, they was never challenged in any court. And that's going to be our criterion. Any, 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 have we ever stricken down a, uh, a, a, a gerrymander uh, that was done for political purposes? Yes, Your Honor. I think that uh, the court has uh, struck down, uh, but but uh, political uh, considerations can be uh, uh, taken into consideration when when drawing uh, uh, when, when redistricting. What, what, what did case did down? that? That's no, no. new one to me. I I didn't know that we had had a case that struck down political gerrymandering on the basis of protecting incumbents. That is my mistake, Your Honor. I don't believe that the court has ever struck down a political gerrymander to protect incumbency. Incumbency, in fact, can be considered uh, in, in redistricting. So that's going to be our criterion as to whether this district is too weird. If it were done for political purposes, and there's nothing too weird for political purposes, it can be done for racial purposes. Is that the criterion you, you urge upon us? No, Your Honor. I, the criteria that I, that I urge upon the Court is, is to use past redistricting history, past redistricting principles, ensuring that the district that is drawn is not s significantly stranger in shape than any other You didn't district. stick to the old district. You intentionally altered the old district, as unusual as it is. You made it a little more unusual or unusual in a different way in order to assure that you had a certain majority of people of a certain race. Isn't that right? There's no question, Your Honor, that the legislature considered race in trying to form a majority-minority That is district. indeed how the district was formed. You didn't just take this old gerrymandered district and leave it there. You changed it to be sure you could get a certain number of people of a certain race. To some extent, Your Honor, but not so dramatically that one could say it was a dramatic departure from past redistricting principles. And certainly, District 4 uh, does not look that much stranger than the old District 8, which was a majority the, white the district. The original one did. You reacted. Louisiana reacted to Shaw against Reno. And what was the difference between the district that's here before us and the original one that you... You had. Well, Your Honor, in some cases, District 4 is actually more compact than the old District 8. District 8 extended from the Texas border all the way to Lake Pontchartrain. That is not the case in District 4. It follows the same Red River parishes uh, down the Red River and Mississippi, uh, Mississippi uh, axis uh, through central Louisiana and ends around Baton Rouge. But that represents quite a change from what was it called, Act 42? Yes, Your Honor, it does represent quite a change from Act 42. This, we submit, Your Honor, is, is a compact district uh, that uh, does not depart dramatically from past historical configurations. In fact, it follows the old 8th District uh, quite a bit. General, In General, may I go sort of behind your present argument to, to what I understand your brief to say and raise a question about that? As I understand it, the point of what you're arguing now is that because this district is not bizarre, since it, on historical grounds, there's nothing that unusual about it, there shouldn't be any strict scrutiny applied at all, because you say Shore and Reno requires bizarreness as sort of the threshold showing in order to require a strict scrutiny analysis. Is, is that That's your correct, argument? Your Honor. I have been assuming, and you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that just as you would try to define bizarre by what is traditional, that you would probably argue, and I guess I have assumed, that 
what is sufficiently compact for, uh, for the, the Gingles test probably has the same sort of historical criterion. If, it, if it's compact in, in to the degree it historically has been, that's compact enough. That's correct, Your right. Here's the problem I have with the argument. If that is going to be the condition upon which we apply strict scrutiny, then once we find that a district is bizarre enough to be subject to the scrutiny, it's necessarily going to flunk the Gingles test uh, so that it could never, uh, in effect, be, a, a, um, be justified uh, as, as necessary or reasonably necessary to avoid a Section 2 violation. Conversely, if it doesn't flunk the Gingles test, if it's not bizarre, then if we adopt your position or adopt the bizarreness position, we would never uh, at least be scrutinizing it for any other purpose. Uh, we would, for example, never get to the point of scrutinizing it for packing. How do we get out of that, that bind that if, if we scrutinize it at all, it's necessarily going to flunk? If we don't scrutinize it, we never would, would look uh, to other violations such as a, com a, a packing violation. Uh. Your Honor, I think that initially one can look at the particular configuration of, of the district and make a determination, uh, at least looking at it, whether or not the configuration is bizarre. No, but your argument was, I, I realize that's what we're all going to do in the first instance, but I thought your argument was that whether we ultimately classify it as bizarre or not, is going to depend on whether it departs significantly from what had been produced by non-racial, we, we assume, non-racial districting in the past. So that it, we, we may start out by looking at it, but ultimately what we're going to do, on your theory, is, uh, is to ask, is this like what we used to do? That, that's correct, Your Honor. I think that what needs to be done is to decide whether or not the district uh, does follow historical uh, redistricting configurations. If, if it's not a stranger than other districts that have been drawn uh, using other uh, factors, uh, if that is the case, then certainly uh, it, it is not bizarre under Shaw versus, Shaw versus Reno and then strict scrutiny. All right, but then how, how do we solve the problems that are bothering me? How do we solve the problem that if it's bizarre enough to scrutinize, it necessarily is going to flunk the test? Maybe that's the easy part. And how do we also solve the problem that if it's not bizarre enough to scrutinize, we wouldn't look for other violations such as packing? Well, Your Honor, if it's, uh, if it's bizarre, if you say that it is bizarre and strict scrutiny applies, then I think you have to look at the compelling state interest and, w and then whether or not it's narrowly tailored uh, or the plan is narrowly tailored to satisfy that compelling state interest. If you apply st strict scrutiny, then I think that uh, the, the court has to prove or show the compelling state interest. And it can be done that even if the court uh, it can be done even if the court finds that it is bizarre. Thank you, General Ayub. Uh, General Days will hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. I'd like to begin my argument by trying to address the question that uh, Justice Souter was putting to General Ayub about the relationship between bizarreness uh, and the, the nature of the inquiry. Uh, first of all, I, I agree with uh, Justice uh, uh, General Ayub that 
the court here used the wrong legal standard in determining whether the district was bizarre sufficient to trigger strict scrutiny under this court's decisions in Shaw. Well, but General Day, let's suppose that the evidence discloses, and we move it from this case for a moment. Let's just suppose the evidence discloses clearly that the uh, predominant uh, purpose of drawing the particular district boundaries uh, was to achieve a certain racial goal. That was the predominant purpose, regardless of appearance. Uh, is there a claim made? I think that, as, as this Court had addressed it in Shaw versus Reno, there would have to be a showing of the bizarreness of the district. Otherwise, what would happen is courts could just by... Of course, the, the extreme appearance of a district boundaries might be uh, strong evidence of just that, that the predominant or sole purpose was to draw it along racial lines. Now, if that's established by other means, um, is the court not to look at that? Justice O'Connor, we don't read Shaw versus Reno to authorize that type of inquiry. What we see Shaw versus Reno with respect as doing is imposing some limiting principles on pre-existing precedent. You think it's a purely visual test? No, I don't think it's a purely visual test. I think, as General Ayub indicated, there has to be some uh, inquiry on the part of the court with respect to what has been done in the past. It's an objective and comparative analysis, not simply eyeballing. But only looking at the shape of the district. Only looking at the shape of the district, I think, does not provide the type of information that we believe this court was Well, was what seeking. I'm trying to get at, perhaps, is the same thing I think Justice yes. O'Connor was trying to get. Supposing that uh, the shape itself does not prove to be really, quote, bizarre, close quote, but a finding of fact is made that the predominant purpose of the legislature was to uh, construct a majority-minority district. Well, under those circumstances, I think the case would move into strict scrutiny, and the state would have to show a compelling interest for doing what it was doing. So bizarreness by, is not an essential ingredient of a claim. I think it is, because prior to Shaw versus Reno, and as I indicated, I don't think that Shaw versus Reno changed the law, it was not possible to set out an equal protection claim on one, uh, unless one could show that there was some injury, that is, intent to discriminate and a discriminatory effect. And it is not our reading of Shaw versus Reno that it changed that law. Well, well you, you agree that in the Shaw versus Reno context, it is a violation of the Constitution to draw a district with the predominant purpose of uh, Composing it on the basis of one race. Or I don't think substantially. With respect, Justice Kennedy, I don't think that's what Shaw versus Reno says. It says that uh, the district is drawn in a way that can be reasonably understood as being solely for the purpose of separating the races. But, but that itself, I take it, is the evil that the constitutional protection is that is, to prevent. That is correct. That, that Shaw versus and if, Reno. And if that, if that is so, why should it be confined just to districts with an irregular shape? Because I think this court's prior precedent dictates that. Let me give an example of how this, the but, court's but, standard what, here. Other, other than the precedent, what would be the explanation for that? The explanation would be that Shaw versus Reno did not create uh, a new cause of action that rejected prior causes of action. We understand Shaw versus Reno to say that 
if it is shown that the district is so bizarre that it can be understood in only uh, a, a racial gerrymandering fashion, then the state is responsible for justifying that uh, under strict scrutiny. In your view, why should that be a constitutional violation under Shaw? Because this Court did not change the prior law. And what the prior law said, what this Court recognized, was that race is something that is always a part of the redistricting process. There is no such thing as a neutral redistricting line. But so then it seems to me that the Chief Justice is right. All you're imposing is a visual test, and that makes very little sense to me, other than that as, a, as, a, as one threshold indicator of the prohibited intent. Well, Justice Kennedy, I think what this Court recognized in Shaw versus Reno and other cases, uh, as I was about to uh, uh, describe, was that race is a consideration along with other uh, criteria in the redistricting process. So if uh, what you're saying, Justice Kennedy, is that whenever a state uses race as one of the considerations in the redistricting process, it's automatically moved over into strict scrutiny, then the consequences are as follows. If Louisiana, for example, drew a district that recognized the interest of Creoles, decided that Creoles had a different language, had a different religious view, had different political views and different economic concerns, that would not trigger any constitutional review. But if the state looked at a group of blacks and decided that those blacks had commonalities of interest that coincided with race but did not turn solely on race and tried to recognize those communities of interest, uh, the reading that's being suggested would automatically shift that determination by the state into strict scrutiny. And it is our position that for this court to suggest that every time a state or a locality or a municipality goes through a redistricting process and uses race as one of the considerations, that it moves into strict scrutiny uh, has several problems. General, I, I don't think the question has been whether they use it at all. I think the, I, I thought the questioning has been whether that has been the predominant consideration. And, I, I understand and, that, Justice. You know, whether that's the basis on which the district was drawn. And, and I thought that that had been conceded here, that these are not hypothetical questions you're getting. I, I thought that 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 that, uh, that that is the case here. That the, the 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 attorney general for the state acknowledges that that's how the district was drawn, with the precise purpose of getting a majority minority district. Well, but Justice Scalia, that the, we can talk about whether the state satisfied strict scrutiny, but the point I think that is very important to make in terms of the process is it's not merely a, a matter of shifting burdens. It is that. Even with a completely regular, uh, traditional district with no deviations whatsoever, the standard that the district court used, namely where race-conscious redistricting is involved, uh, it is not necessarily unconstitutional, well, but always subject to strict scrutiny, is a very powerful, I think, uh, very disruptive and incorrect way of looking at the districting process. Don't you think a distinction can be made? between situations where race is one of a lot of factors that's considered in districting and situations in which race is the determinative factor where you set out to create a majority-minority district. Can't that distinction be made? The distinction can be made, but I think the process is important. Uh, uh, if a state uses a, an approach that happens to coincide with concentrations of racial minorities, I think the test that's being presented here would automatically haul before the court 
the legislative officers who were involved in this process to probe their intent, to find out what they were thinking, what all of them uh, had in mind when but they passed General, the statute. Days, isn't it the case here that that is it's conceded the the endeavor was to create a majority minority district? And I think you answered Justice O'Connor's question by distinguishing Reno B. Shaw from simply ende- endeavoring to create a minority majority district. Yes. And you cited precedent. I thought you had in mind United Jewish Organizations against Cary. Now, wasn't the predominant purpose there to create a minority-majority district? Uh, Absolutely, Justice Ginsburg. And that's what I meant when I said that we we did not understand Shaw versus Reno to repudiate prior precedent. And in UJO, five justices of this court very clearly said... UJO was a badly splintered court. Uh, it was badly splintered, but, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I think one can find in that opinion a recognition that in the limited circumstance where the state was trying to respond to a denial of preclearance by the United States Attorney General under the Voting Rights Act, that what you, New York did there was consistent with the Constitution. Uh, there are other positions there that we're not, we recognize, we're not shared by a majority of the I understand that what you're saying is that you're, you're saying we should, we should read what we, what the majority said in Shaw as a mechanism basically to make the first cut so that every time there is not an automatically litigable issue. That's correct. My problem is why isn't that also going to function for reasons raised in my question as a last cut? In other words, if you, if you flunk the, uh, the bizarreness test, you're necessarily going to uh, flunk any attempt to, to get a, a, a Section 2 justification because it won't be compact with Gingles. Conversely, if you pass the bizarreness test based on historical comparison, you don't look at anything else like PAC. How do we get out of that? Well, let me take the, the second part of that. I think the court has indicated that it's always available for a plaintiff to bring a packing uh, claim. That's independent of this process. And it would be like traditional lawsuits showing dilution, which was not a, a, a right that was abrogated or altered in any way insofar as we're concerned by Shaw versus Reno. Uh, so that, that claim would still so be sure available. And, sure, and Reno basically is just one, one entrance gate to equal protection. It's that, not exclusive. That is absolutely correct. Now, on the, on the question of whether a district is found bizarre uh, by the court, then what happens at the, the point of uh, meeting strict scrutiny and showing a compelling interest on narrow tailoring? I think that uh, if bizarreness were found, uh, it might be impossible to satisfy the claim that it was uh, a strong basis and evidence for thinking that section t- a Section 2 violation might, uh, might occur. Would there be an opportunity to justify it on avoiding Section 5? I think there would be a possibility under Section 5, and there would also be a possibility of justifying it under the 14th Amendment, because the, uh, the uh, compelling interest that so the state has put forward here... autonomous effort to... That, yeah. That's correct, and therefore... There is obviously a connection between a bizarreness finding and a Section 2 defense, but not between bizarreness and some of the other, uh, the other uh, claims that are made. Speaking of Section 5, um, in pre-clearing, does the Department of Justice assume that uh, unless the legislature of the state uh, creates a majority-minority district where it is possible to do it, 
that otherwise there, you would assume discrimination on the part of the No, state? that's not the position. It's a more uh, totality of the circumstances analysis, and it's not an automatic determination uh, as to how that will be resolved. Well, I guess we'll get into that more in the next case. But uh, let me ask the, the, one other thing. Yes. Uh, uh, the plaintiffs in this case did not live in District 4. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. And they, they did not, they lived in some district, was it contiguous to it? I believe it, it was a contiguous district, yes. And do you assume that they had standing to raise this claim? Well, Justice O'Connor, as, as you're aware, we did not raise the standing issue. But I think that it is a problematic uh, concern in this case. Uh, if Shaw versus Reno, uh, in fact, entitled people because of certain stigmatic harm, or the possibility that they would not be adequately represented uh, to bring a Shaw versus Reno claim, those who are either in the district or in adjoining districts uh, who might be affected by the, the district, I think, probably have the type of standing that the court had in mind in Shaw versus Reno. The problem is how far to take that and whether it can go uh, to the extent of the entire state, anyone, any place in the state can bring this type of lawsuit with respect to one district. Well, if, if you're included in because you're black, I, I presume you're excluded out because you're white. Uh, 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 certainly yes. a, um, a person who's contiguous enough that he might have been, uh, might have been included in, but for the fact that they wanted to exclude any more white votes, I assume he'd have some complaint. But he might have to show that, uh, I guess. Yes, the only thing I'm, I'm uh, trying to point out is that prior to Shaw versus Reno, may I complete my answer, Mr. Chief Justice? But prior to Shaw versus Reno, uh, standing was consistent with a number of decisions of this court, uh, like the Wright case, where there had to be something shown, uh, injury in fact, traceability and redressability. Uh, under Shaw versus Reno, uh, there appears to be uh, some variation uh, in those standards. Thank you very Thanks. much. Thank you, General Days. Uh, Mr. Warren, we'll hear from you. Chief Justice Rehnquist, may it please the Court. Uh, before discussing this morning uh, how this case fits within the Court's traditional equal protection framework, I think it's probably important to set the record straight. First, as the District Court held, Act One, which is challenged here, is a cosmetic makeover of Act 42, which the state of Louisiana concedes was in violation of the 14th Amendment. Specifically, District 4 in Act 1 joins together four widely separated cities. But, uh, Mr. One, certainly it is not a cosmetic makeover in the sense that it, is, it follows closely the lines of, of the earlier district. It's quite different. Well, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, I think that's a misperception in this sense. There are four major metropolitan areas. I mean, geographically, it's quite it, I mean, it looks different. If you're simply it, it, talking sure about visual appearances, it looks different. But let me stress that the key to this District 4 is four metropolitan areas, which heretofore in Louisiana history had always been in three or four separate congressional districts. The key to creating this district was joining them together in one district, combining them in one district. Uh, now, when they were combined in one district, in order to accomplish that, you end up having to split parishes. And this district splits 12 of its 15 parishes. 
No previous district in the history of Louisiana ever split more than four parishes. Indeed, no entire plan in the history of Louisiana ever split more than seven. Mr. Park, where do the plaintiffs reside? In what district? Uh, Mr. Warren. Uh, uh, excuse me, Mr. Warren. Justice, where do the uh, plaintiffs reside? Uh, Justice O'Connor, they reside in Grambling and Ruston, Louisiana. Uh, those two communities were in the previous District 4, the Zorro District that Chief Justice Rehnquist was referring to. When the lines were redrawn, they were therefore uh, uh, separated out from uh, the new District 4. Now, they were in the 1992 Yes, district. yes, Your Honor. Do they are they contiguous now? Yes, they are. Are they in a district that is contiguous now to Yes, four? they are in District 5, and it is contiguous to District 4. Did, did, did they contend that the Zorro district was correctly designed? No, uh, Chief Justice, I mean, no, uh, Justice Kennedy. They, uh, their position was and is that they have a right not to be classified by race for purposes of districting. Uh, their claim is really closely analogous to the kind of claim that is made with respect to jury selection. Well, you know, l- l- assuming that their contention, and I think that would be their contention, is that the, both the Zorro district and this district are improper, how have they been uh, uh, m- mistreated in this case? Well, they've been mistreated, mistreated, and this is what I was trying to address, Justice Kennedy. They have been mistreated by the state of Louisiana by being classified by race for purposes of districting. It was their race, and it was the race of Louisiana citizens, uh, which determined uh, the lines which were drawn. And I think we proved that. They're all of different races, aren't these plaintiffs of different races? Uh, It's a little hard to find. I could see if if you had white plaintiffs who said we were put out of this district because we were white. But you have a black plaintiff and a white plaintiff and an Asian-American plaintiff. So every race uh, is equally discriminated against, treated the same. I don't see how you get racial discrimination uh, by an exclusion that equally affects a black and a white. Justice uh, Ginsburg, our claim is that our plaintiffs are entitled, entitled to be treated without regard to race. Uh, it is and true. these people are left out without regard to their race or put in another district. No, but citizens in the state are being classified by, on racial grounds in order to uh, draw these district lines, as the district court so found in this case. And you really are arguing a kind of standing that I, up until now, thought existed only in the Establishment Clause area. Is it anybody, anybody in the state can object to this kind of districting? Uh, Justice Ginsburg, I don't think that's true. We are making a claim which is closely analogous to the standing found in the jury selection yeah, But in the jury cases, the, 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 the people who are objecting are, are, are rather narrowly identified. Uh, it, it, is, it is a party uh, who can challenge, and it is a party who can challenge based upon the interests of, of excluded jurors, not on the basis of the whole world or the whole state population. But still in all, it is based upon the right of every citizen not to be put on a particular pettit jury based on his or her race. Well, uh, yes, but if, if, if I happen to be going about my business on the street below the courthouse and I find that uh, or I have reason to believe that a discriminatory jury selection is going on, I can't walk in and, and, and be given standing to object to it. 
and yet the analogy is that if I am at the furthest corner of Louisiana, uh, I can do precisely that with respect to this district. But first, let, let me say that it, the jury pool from which juries are selected is very much like the electorate from which districts are being drawn. But let me go further to say our plaintiffs were, as I responded to uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, in District 4 of Act 42, which was then invalidated. Now they are, they, whether black or white, they are outside of the new District 4. That is true. But, but they we, weren't put out because of their race, since they're all well, different races. That, they weren't individually, perhaps, but the district lines were drawn based upon race so that individuals who were black or white or lived in those communities uh, where the lines were being drawn on race were being uh, classified by race. But they I, haven't personally been uh, denied equal protection treatment, have they? I, I think that they have a Some personal kind of right not to be classified by race. We analogize it in our brief uh, to Brown. I mean, the question in Brown was not uh, whether or not uh, there was a different education. It was stipulated, albeit probably not truly, the fact uh, that the education was equal. The question was being classified by race for purposes of education. This is classification by the state for, by race for purposes of voting. Except for the Zorro, their, their uh, brief residence in the effinescent Zorro district. How are they any different from any citizen in Louisiana? Following Justice Souter's question, it seems to me you're uh, arguing for a generalized standing, which no. I, I think would take us quite beyond our existing case. First of all, I think we are, we are arguing that persons who are in districts adjacent to this district are being affected because the district — and I, I, let me say, I don't want to engage in the very racial stereotypes which are the problem of this case in order to defend standing. I don't want to say that, that, that my black plaintiff is being harmed because he's being put in a vastly white majority district. That is feeding the very stereotype which is the vice well, in this case. But you have to some case. particularized injury, and I'm simply asking you how your plaintiffs are different than plaintiffs in any other part of the state, other than the fact they're contiguous. But uh, they would have always been contiguous, other than the Zorro district, which uh, they too challenged. Well, I, I think, again, un unless I engage, it's easy enough for me to make the allegation that my plaintiff, Ed Adams, who is black, is being harmed by being put in a district that is 85 percent white. I could do that. Sure, I could make that allegation. But if I made that allegation, I would be predicating that allegation on the very vice at issue in this case, and that is racial stereotypes. Oh, you wouldn't have to do that. You would satisfy me if you could show some evidence that but for racial districting, one of your plaintiffs would have been in a different district. I mean, that seems to me a concrete harm. A person would have been in one district, is put in another district solely by reason of racial districting, even though the racial districting might not have had anything right. to do with his race. But you haven't even demonstrated that, well, as far I, as I can see. I, I think we have demonstrated that, because, because... But for this racial districting, any one of your plaintiffs would have been in a different well, district? Well, but, but, but for this entire process, they would have been, been in District 4 and Act 42. They were taken out of that when the lines were redrawn, but because those lines were redrawn on a racial basis, they were put out of a previous district. They had to be redrawn. They of had to be redrawn be because redrawn. The, prior, the prior system was unconstitutional. It seems to me you have to make some showing that the redrawing would have included them in a different district, but for this, this racial factor. 
I, I, and, and I don't know that you've made any such showing. Well, I, I think I've made the following showings. Let me try to summarize because I don't want to. <laughs> Justice Mr. Ginsburg. Mr. Ginsburg, you, you yeah. did start out with, with plaintiffs who were voters in the district that you challenged. Indeed. And then the state took it back and said, we realize this plan has infirmities. We're coming right. up with a new And that left your people out. There's no way to connect them back to the plan that is moot, is academic. Compare well, them to where they were before there was any 42. But, 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 but Your Honor, you're missing one major point that I keep <laughs> trying to stress. We challenged Act 1. We did not challenge District 4. We challenged Act 1. We challenged the entire state law, which district by race, statewide. So you do say that anybody in the state has a claim. I do I say that anybody that in the state okay. has a claim. I'm not, trying to, no. I'm not trying to duck that at all. I'm trying to avoid it once. Well, I apologize. Yeah. I didn't mean to, to avoid that because we do say that. Can we I don't? ask you a hypothetical question that's been running through my yes. mind? Yes, yes. Where the heart of the case, you say, is distancing by race. Yes. Supposing the uh, state legislature had two alternative plans to consider, both of which had completely compact districts, uh, followed state uh, county lines or parish lines and were equal in population. They were equal in all respects in terms of neutral factors except one. In one plan, there are two majority-minority districts. In the other plan, there are no majority-minority districts. And the history of the case is perfect, the legislative history is perfectly clear that everybody in the legislature unanimously voted for the two minority-minority districts, minority-majority districts, simply because they thought it would be a good thing for the state of Louisiana to have two black congresspersons. Would that be unconstitutional? Uh, first, that's not our case, but I think it is your case. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's not our case because I think uh, these lines don't meet any of the criteria you're talking about. But let, let me continue and not argue. Me, I'm trying to follow up on Justice O'Connor's right. question. Is how important is, this, is the shape of the district? And I'm assuming there's no shape problem at all in my hypothetical. In your hypothetical. And no doubt assume, at all about the controlling if, factor in the decision between these two plans. We're, we're assuming away shape. We're assuming away traditional districting principles. That is, we don't have the split parishes and split cities and all the things that I was referring to previously. If we have only the concession that race was the predominant factor, it is still subject to strict scrutiny. Is it unconstitutional, in my example? It is unconstitutional unless the state can come forward with a compelling interest. Their only reason, in my they example, have no their only reason is they think they have a history they're not proud of, and they would like to have two black representatives in Congress. The history won't do it. So that, well, of, of now, course. supposing the other choice is the majority, in fact, voted the other way and said, we'll vote for the other plan because we don't want two black representatives. Would that be unconstitutional? That would be equally questionable. So they couldn't choose either one. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we would, we, in, in a real world, I don't think we get stymied in the way in which you're talking. Race cannot be the predominant factor under this court's equal protection analysis. Warren, I assume when you yeah. have regular districts, and it's one of the, uh, one of the elements of regular districts, uh, ordinarily race is not the predominant factor. There are a lot of other factors you're taking into account. Geographic proximity, same schools, community of geographic interests, and so forth. Uh, that's, what, that's what makes uh, regular districts ordinarily less challengeable. But if you find one where the only reason they, 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 they pick this particular regular district is race, then you have a different situation. But an unusual one, I suppose. But I think an extremely unusual one. I mean, I think this is a, this is a hypothetical that is 
really impossible to be true in reality, because I think you only assert it's bad if race is the predominant consideration. Yeah. You, I think you acknowledge that race can be one of the considerations in a whole bunch. Sure, not at all. sure. Race, I, I agree with you. It's the predominant uh, yeah. consideration for only those legislators who are frank in their voting in the legislature. They said candidly what they're doing, and others said nothing. When, when does it become predominant? Does it have to be a majority that say so? This Court has had for 20 years a framework for evaluating these cases, these questions of mixed motive. That framework applies here just as it does in a whole variety of different settings. But it requires a careful examination of legislative history to find out what the real motive was. Is that it, right? It requires a careful examination of facts, and those facts can include uh, uh, consideration of the real purpose of the legislature. Let me say, though, it's a lot easier than that uh, is suggested, because what you can look at and Shaw was an example of one type of evidence, the bizarre shape of the district. Another is exactly what I was trying to start with, which was, which is, did you follow traditional district principles? Did you follow Louisiana's own history? The answer I'd like is to no. For many, I mean, the basic thing that I have a lot of trouble is I don't understand this word predominant. Are you saying that people can draw district boundaries in order to put into one district large numbers of Catholics, Jews, uh, Germans, uh, Hispanics, Italians, uh, all kinds of things, but not blacks. And, and if there is some distinction there, what is the distinction, particularly in light of the history in this country? And, and, and how do you, uh, in fact, draw a line where you've gone too far? I mean, th those are the problems that are in my mind. I, and, and this word predominant seems uh, like a, a keystone, but what does it mean? I, I can understand uh, what it might mean uh, if you have a very, maybe it's something to do with shape. I mean, what is your view of the standard? Are you saying that under your principle, all of the districts in the United States, or many of them, or most of them, are suddenly going to be redistricted? Uh, what sort of workable principles uh, are there, and what are you aiming towards? That, that's what I, the question is. I understand, exactly. And, uh, Justice Breyer, the starting point is this Court's traditional analysis under Vandermeer, I mean, I mean under uh, Washington v. Davis and Arlington Heights. Now, the question is always going to be factual. The question is that you're asking, though, is always, was the factor which drove this district a suspect classification? Was it race in this case? If the answer to that was yes. Well, that, that would be true in many, many, many districts in the United States. Since the time of 1789, people did look to uh, not only racial, but characteristics of nationality, religion, class, occupation, a host of different things in drawing districts. And, and I imagine that in any case where whether you were an Irish-American, an African-American, or whatever the legislature thought might produce a vote for their side, that if we go back and look at those little jogs uh, and so forth in the boundary, there is a little jog there or here where that's what was in the legislator's mind. Now, now how, how, in fact, is a court going to go into this and say when that little jog is or is first, not appropriate all, or not appropriate? First of all, Justice Breyer, this court said in Shaw... And, and I think Justice O'Connor's opinion on this draws about the right line, and that is that race can help us to define the boundaries of a community. I mean, it's not irrelevant. It is one of these things that is going to be before the legislature, and we know it is going to be before the legislature. The problem is when race takes over and the district is being drawn based upon racial stereotypes, and if I could 
if I could quote from what our opponents said in their brief, because they make this point. They say that uh, blacks and presumably whites also vote differently and, as they say, are different politically cohesive groups. And they argue that without uh, race-dominant districting, uh, those group groups are going to be put at a competitive disadvantage. But what that is doing, it is making assumptions that all blacks are going to vote the same way, all whites are going to vote the same way, that blacks can't represent whites and whites can't represent blacks. What it is doing is erasing us as individuals. We should... But Mr. Warren, does it make that assumption that really that all will vote the same way or that a sufficient number of them will vote the same way to make that a political judgment that makes sense, such as all Catholics are, tend to vote in a certain way in the city of Chicago or all Polish Americans tend to vote in a certain Are you saying they're, they're all going to vote the same way? I don't no, think I don't think you're saying... I don't you're think just you're saying there's a political all. reality at work here. But I think what, what you're saying, you're making, again, it is it is... Just as uh, the it's invidious to assume that all blacks would. Is it less invidious to assume that all Polish Americans will vote the same way? If if being a Polish American is a suspect classification, it's the same. Well, it's only if it's a suspect classification that you don't get the benefit of being able to have your group interests uh, treated as a group interest. But I, I think it's I think you're you're making an assumption of it being a benefit, and what I'm saying is that it is a. It is a well, don't you think more black legislators would have voted for this plan than against it? And is it invidious to make that political I'm not at all sure of that. And I think that back black legislators, who knows? But I think that, that, that those are the presumptions that we cannot rest on. And let me say, again, you come back to the jury selection cases, I find extremely helpful in this regard. Because what is the prosecutor doing but making assumptions about how blacks or white or men or women are going to vote in a particular case? And it is that stereotypical assumption, even if it has some but factual Warren, basis, that lies at the heart of the problem. Um, it was a badly splintered opinion, but there were two, if you will, stereotypes involved in the UJO case. And both of them, both groups accepted the proposition that if we can have our district, not every Hasidic Jew is going to vote the same way, but a lot of them are. Mm -hmm. And the same assumption was made, what is the difference between Louisiana and New York? Or do we just say UJO is a hopeless precedent, forget it? Well, I think this court in Shaw did deal with UJO and probably dealt with it about right. I mean, UJO was was filed as a uh, a vote dilution case. It was not filed and was not pursued uh, as this case is being pursued. This case predicated on the assumption that classifying voters by race is precluded by the 14th Amendment. Now, how you prove that is a different question, and it's difficult, and there's going to be difficult problems with proof in some cases. Supposing, supposing, Mr. Uh, Warren, that the evidence, the, the evidence before the, be, shows that the Louisiana legislature uh, simply paired off this district because they wanted about a 70 percent uh, Democratic majority in it. Can you come into court and say, well, the statistics from past voting in Louisiana show that 90% of blacks vote Democratic, therefore, although ostensibly it was Democratic, it was really racially motivated? It would be a very hard proof. That's, that's a very different case for two reasons. Number one, uh, when, when you join a political party, you're making a choice. 
by contrast, when the state makes assumptions about you as uh, because of the color of your skin, the state is engaged in prohibited racial stereotyping. Number two, this Court's precedents make a distinction between race and political considerations. Justice Brennan said it very eloquently in the UJO case. This Court recognized that again in Shaw. Uh, this Court has a, a, a line that it has drawn between, between political gerrymandering and, and racial stereotyping, which is what is the issue in this case. Mr. Warren, may I ask you just to clarify something about your position? When you were ad- addressing Justice Breyer's question, uh, one of the things he said that was bothering him was how we deal with the concept of predominant purpose. Yes. As I understand it, your position is not, uh, is not that it must be the predominant purpose. If it is a motivating factor at all, that is sufficient to trigger the scrutiny on your position. Isn't that correct? We suggest that what this Court said in Arlington was that it must be a substantial motivating factor to create a prime But not predominant. But, but substantial motivating and predominant, first of all, I think, are Academic. simply semantic uh, distinctions. But let me say, secondly, under Arlington Heights, substantial motivating factor is what trigger what, what creates a prima facie case. The state always has an opportunity to come back and say no. Uh, it's not the, uh, okay. the predominant factor. Did, did the judge then, in, in this particular case, go too far? I take it what you're describing is the criterion that the judge in the Johnson case used. Didn't the judge in this case take a, a, a more, uh, a, 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 adopt a lower threshold for strict scrutiny than yours? I, I really don't think that's the case. This court relied from the very outset on this court, I mean, the district court relied from the very outset on this court's decisions in uh, Arlington and Wright uh, versus Rockefeller. And they conducted three long hearings of two days each. And had, had it simply been a matter of was race considered at all, well, it would have been an easy case. What they found on the record was that race was the fundamental factor, and I'm quoting from the Court's opinion, fundamental factor driving Act 1 was race. Mr. Warren, I'd like to be clear on whether you make a distinction between race and other suspect categories. Would you make any different argument if we were talking about Polish Americans, about Italian Americans, about Irish Americans? Suppose the, the dominant or a substantial purpose was to have a district where the dominant national origin group would be Irish. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, we addressed that in our brief, and we said that if a suspect classification becomes the touchstone, uh, it's invalid. We used the Curious Joel case uh, as an example of that, and several uh, justices on this court uh, actually cited Shaw uh, in connection with their opinions in that case. The question is, and it was in that case, the de- defining feature was the uh, Hasidic sect, the Satmar sect. And that, if it becomes the touchstone, is, I think, the basis for invalidating. What if, and this, this uh, raises both uh, Curious Joel and, uh, and the UJO case, what if uh, a racial, ethnic, or religious group has certain... Uh, uh, social characteristics that render it cohesive. Uh, I always viewed UJO as not lumping these people together because they were because they were Hasidic Jews, but because they had a lifestyle that rendered them a natural political community. Uh, you would have no objection to to a city which has an area that, that is a, a social unit, all of which is black, and perhaps the blackness right. has something to do with the social unit of it that being lumped together, would you? No, not at all. I mean, I... I why, why isn't the fact that they uh, typically vote together sufficient? 
because that is the racial stereotyping. The, the, the question — You mean if the stereotype, if it's a social affinity — No, no, no. But it's, I mean a stereotype if it's a political affinity, but it's not a stereotype if it's a social affinity. The question — And why then doesn't — wouldn't proof that they in fact have a social affinity overcome the, the presumption? I mean, these are always going to be difficult factual questions, but, but it's, a different, it's a different issue. What is the boundary of the community? In Justice Scalia's question, uh, the social aspects of the community are helping to define the take community. Take judicial notice of that. But right. we can't take similar judicial notice in a, when, whenever the, the characteristic is a racial characteristic. Is that it? Race is, is different. And, and, and it's not just race. It is normally race is different because it's normally totally irrelevant to the decision. You see, in this case, the apparently uh, Louisiana made a judgment that it was not irrelevant. And therefore, the, the normal reason for strict scrutiny does not apply. Well, uh, race comes into play in lots of decisions that are made in society which are subject to the Arlington Heights uh, analysis. This is not the only place where uh, the decision maker is going to be aware of race. Uh, the, the question is factual. The question is difficult. Sometimes, a lot of times, it's easy. Here it's easy. Here it's easy because the district court three separate hearings. It sorted through all the facts. It heard all the evidence. It's evident, self-evident, I think, to anyone who examines the record that this district was drawn based on race. It split parishes, cities. It was designed uh, for this purpose. There can be hard cases, sure. There's going to be hard cases under any Arlington Heights uh, analysis. Uh, but this court has concluded, this court did conclude in Jingles, uh, when we're talking about difficult factual questions like this, that the district court's judgment uh, should be respected unless it, the decision is clearly erroneous, unless the findings are clearly erroneous. And here they plainly are not clearly erroneous. Mr. Warren, when you speak about difficult decisions, one of the m many problems in this case is it, it, when you deal with Shaw against Reno, when you've got one criterion bizarreness, and that's not hard to apply. But to determine uh, predominance, substantial, and it can spread to other groups, national origin groups that have been classified as suspect, it seems you're getting, you're opening the door to the kinds of challenges that the federal courts were into of necessity in the school segregation cases and in to a limited extent in the redistricting cases to just, uh, well, how can you contain this thing once you open the door this way? Your Honor, I don't think it's difficult to contain. I think most districts nationwide, the majority of any, any race, are there because that's where the communities are. We don't have this problem. But let me tell you the problem, and that is that the Justice Department has a program which is maximizing the number of majority, minority districts nationwide and forcing states to engage in the kind of racial stereotyping that is at issue here. That is the problem. If the Justice Department were to follow Beer and back away from a maximization approach, we would have far fewer challenges, and most of these problems could be resolved uh, by district courts if and when challenges are made. Thank these you. Your, your time has expired, Mr. Warren. Thank you. The case is submitted.